0: Listener production. Hey, our Tom here. Uh, this week on The Briefing, we've been having some big conversations about the First Nations voice. And to properly understand this proposal that we'll all be voting on later this year, I'm putting this episode from last June back into your feed. It's a really interesting interview that explains the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which was written and delivered in 2017. Because that's where the call from The Voice actually came from. So it's really important to understand how that all happened to really get your head around what The Voice is and what we're voting on. So here's the episode that Katrina Blowers and I did last June, just a few weeks after the federal election. So Katrina, you and I are old enough to have voted in the last (laughs) (laughs) referendum.
1: Oh, thanks for outing me, Tom. (laughs) Me too. So
0: that was in 1999, which means if you're under 40, you've probably never voted in a referendum in Australia. And by the way, that one in 99 was on whether we should ditch the Queen. I voted to keep her, by the way.
1: Yeah, which actually isn't that big a surprise to me, knowing you and your love of the royals. So sometime over the next three years, the new Labor government is going to hold another referendum and you're going to have to vote in it. So what is it all about?
0: In a broad sense, it's about properly recognising Indigenous Australians and Australia's real history. Now, how that's going to happen, how we get to that point, is being guided by an important document called the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Now, it was signed by 250 Indigenous leaders who held a historic four-day meeting at Uluru in 2017. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution.
1: That was Indigenous lawyer Megan Davis speaking at the time. So the statement, which the Labor Party are supporting in full, is asking for two things. The first is the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution, as we heard just then. So, the Constitution is the document which sets out the overarching laws of Australia, and to change it, you need a national referendum.
0: The second main part, and to quote the statement, is We seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations and truth telling about our history.
1: So let's find out what these demands really mean and how this important statement came about. Thomas Mayer is one of the 250 signatories of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. He's also written a book called Finding the Heart of the Nation about his journey taking this statement all around Australia.
0: Thomas, thanks so much for joining us. What was it like being there for those four days at Uluru? Paint the picture for us.
2: Oh, well, the feeling was electric, you know. We'd come from all around the country Uh, And we carried the hopes of our people back in the dialogues. There were 13 regional dialogues that were three days each leading to that moment. You know, the great hope was that we could reach a consensus, that we could go out to broader Australia and to the parliament and say, this is what First Nations people collectively want for the next steps in this nation.
1: This conference was set up by the Referendum Council, which was established by the Parliament, and then that council helped bring the community delegates from the dialogues you just mentioned. Do you think that the leaders who were there, the the 250-plus leaders who were there, were a good representation of Indigenous Australia?
2: Yeah, I think it was. I mean, we can never have all 700,000 of our people In one process in one room, the resources that uh, were had by the Referendum Council only stretched so far, but still it was a significant process and very well resourced compared to other processes that we'd had before. There was an important formula applied to the representation at the dialogues, which ensured that there was a majority cultural authority in the room from each region, and importantly, I think it ensured that there was a cross range of views and perspectives and experiences. You know, it wasn't just the Indigenous people that uh, were, were most practiced at being heard. Um, it ensured that those that are the quieter advocates, the healers and just the survivors were also in the room.
0: And it was pretty dramatic. There were reports at the time, I remember, of people walking out of the meeting. And I guess that's because what was being discussed was, A, very important, but also quite tricky because the Referendum Council put out a discussion paper in the lead-up about constitutional recognition. But that idea was rejected at Uluru as being just symbolic rather than actually much more meaningful and potentially practical. And so several big ideas came out of it in the Uluru Statement, eventually. Tell us how that all happened over the four days. Who was driving the ideas that ended up in the statement? And had some of that been prepared earlier?
2: The ideas were driven from the dialogues back in the regions where, you know, the grassroots people had their say and endorsed an accurate record of meeting at each of those dialogues. The ideas and the, the experiences and the, and the lessons from history really came together in those dialogues and at Uluru. The way that uh, our people understand the way laws and policies affect, you know, our livelihoods, um, you know, the incarceration rates, the gaps in health, uh, really came together in in understanding and proposing a way to influence those laws and policies.
1: You've been travelling around the country with a a big canvas rolled up under your arm uh, that the Uluru Statement has been painted on. I'd love you to describe for us, what does it actually look like?
2: Well, it's uh, 1.8 by 1.6 metres. It's, uh, you know, it's it's a canvas that is imbued with the uh, Chukupa, the laws of the Anu'u people, painted by lead painter Rini Kulitur. It's really something to behold, to see uh, in real life. And I hope one day it will rest in Muradjulu where it was painted. Um, Muradjulu is a small Aboriginal community by Uluru, the omnipresent rock and people would be able to travel there and, and see it after it's achieved everything that it calls for. It's got the 250 signatures of the people like myself that had endorsed the Uluru Statement uh, on 26 May 2017, all around uh, where Uluru would be painted in the middle where the Uluru Statement is printed. It's a very sacred document. I think it's the most significant political and spiritual document this country has.
0: So, when it came out, I remember it was a huge moment, a real sense of celebration that this diverse group of Indigenous leaders had been able to agree on a statement that was so powerful and so strong, and for the rest of the community, they hadn't really heard about these ideas before. It was then quickly pushed back on by the coalition government at the time, led by Malcolm Turnbull, who described the First Nations voice as a third chamber to parliament, And that sort of pushed it out to the edges of the debate for a while, but now it's back, it's front and centre, because the new Labor government have promised to fulfil this statement in full. So let's break down the two key parts of it. First, the constitutionally enshrined First Nations voice. Can you explain what that is
2: and and how it would work? Well, the voice actually isn't a, a new idea, and nor is constitutional recognition, I think, as you've already noted. There's been many statements and petitions before the Uluru Statement, that have called for political representation um, or the ability for our people to speak for ourselves uh, where decisions are made about us. The constitutional enshrinement of the voice is, I think, what's key here in that we have also had many voices in the past. We've had representative bodies established by our own means, you know, by ourselves. And we've also put pressure on governments before and have representative bodies established by government. But every time we've established a voice that challenges the decisions that are made in Canberra, that makes politicians uncomfortable for their failures, a hostile government comes along and silences that voice. So constitutional enshrinement is absolutely vital to protecting and guaranteeing that we will always have a voice on the decisions that are made about us. But also constitutional enshrinement through a referendum gives us the mandate of the Australian people that it should be heard as well. So a very important reform, a structural reform, as the Uluru Statement calls it, and something that should have been done in 1901. I don't think many people could deny that these days that Indigenous people should have had a voice in the constitutional dialogues that led to the foundation of Australia.
0: Mm. So the pushback from Turnbull and Barnaby Joyce, etc., calling it a, a third chamber was a misrepresentation because it implied that Legislation would have to pass through this chamber to go into law. That's not how this voice will work. It will be more of a consultation around laws that affect Indigenous Australians directly. Can you just expand on that a bit more of what the voice would actually do?
2: Yeah, the voice would only advise Parliament. It would give advice to Parliament on the decisions that it will make or that we want it to make. And this is important to understand that if we were to seek more than that, and then that would be a third chamber to parliament, a right to veto or to make our own legislation is what was being used as a scaremongering tactic. The power of the voice, though, even though it's only advisory, is the strength that comes from our people being able to choose our own representatives rather than government-choosing representatives or self-appointed representatives, that we're able to hold those representatives to account. And those representatives having the ability to come together regularly, reach consensus regularly and give the best possible advice to the priorities that our people advise on. This is a really important strength that The Voice will have. It's a practical reform because, as we know, the laws and policies that are made in Canberra are ultimately what leads to the incarceration rates and the gaps in health And so a voice that's able to give advice and then be able to follow up on that advice and put pressure on governments consistently and unapologetically with the guarantee that the constitution would give it is a powerful thing.
1: So that is the first step. Then there's also a Makarata Commission and a treaty. Can you just talk us through what those next steps are?
2: Well, the Makarata Commission would be established to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations and truth telling about our history. It's an ongoing piece of work. We know that uh, from what First Nations treaty experts have said, that treaties will take decades. There is such complexity when we're negotiating a treaty over 250 years after first contact. It's very different from New Zealand and Canada. Where treaties were made at the very close to the point of first contact, um, and we can see that in the Victorian treaty process. It's almost a decade now. You know, it's still very much early days, and negotiations haven't begun yet. I think an interesting thing about Victoria is that first the voice was established, and now they're doing a truth-telling process, and that's agreed as the best way forward.
0: So, Thomas, we're going to go to a referendum on the First Nations Voice within a few years. So this is going to be a huge conversation around Australia. How are you going to sell this to the nation as being worth it? Are you going to talk about the practical difference it will make to the lives of Indigenous Australians? Is it more about who we are as a nation? How are you going to get people over the line?
2: Well, I think it's a very simple argument that we need to put forward, and it's a simple proposal really that First Nations people should be recognised for our special place in this country, over 60,000 years of continuous culture, and that that would be something that is nation-building, it's good for the identity of who we are as Australians that we would share in that long history, and that this is a way that we can begin to close the gap. I think it's a simple ask, and if it's a simple question at referendum, I think most people will vote yes.
0: Do you anticipate much backlash or much opposition to this?
2: Well, it's not like 1967, unfortunately, when we had the referendum to be counted as Australian citizens. There is some toxic people in politics nowadays, and I don't imagine that there will be no opposition to this. Uh, But I think that there's been so much work done on reconciliation. You know, we're, we're talking in reconciliation week here, that I think most Australians are ready for a change like this. People know the truth of the past and I think they're ready to include First Nations people proudly and uh, just like children do. Children love to talk about our culture and um, and they see it as their identity as well.
1: That was Thomas Mayer, who is a Torres Strait Islander man born in Larakea country in Darwin. A very complicated subject, mm. Tom, but He tells it so beautifully and succinctly. And, you know, we we were saying before, this is going to be such a big deal heading into the referendum. We're going to have so many national conversations about this over the next three years. So it'll be interesting to see whether Peter Dutton offers bipartisan support. I think that's going to be a hugely defining moment, not just for his leadership, but also the future direction of the Liberal Party.
0: And, of course, the nation. So good to get across the basics of where this statement came from and what it means as we talk about it so much in the next few years.
1: Listener.